0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is a panel discussion bringing together writers from Sweatshop Literacy Movement, featuring Amani Haider, Shirley Lay, and Tyree Barnett. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now at Final Draft we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Each week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SEL broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Sweatshop is a literacy movement out of Western Sydney. They work to empower culturally and linguistically diverse communities through writing. Sweatshop has an impressive library of works, and the latest is racism, stories on fear, hate, and bigotry. Asking the question, is Australia a racist country, the collection explores well-understood, as well as more covert iterations of racist behaviour, as well as the ways institutions prop up dominant culture, ways of thinking, and being. Tyree, Amani, and Shirley joined me for a long conversation that took in so many important areas – of this discussion. I've split that panel up over two episodes to give you the chance to explore these ideas in your own time. Here in part one, we try to get to the heart of what racism is and how it can exist undercover in patterns of behaviour, as well as through the ways different people are excluded from spaces. Tyree, Shirley and Amani each introduce us to their stories and how they are seeking to engage with racism through the collection. Join me as we discover racism, stories on fear, hate, and bigotry. I'm extremely excited to be welcoming a panel and introducing an anthology. Racism, stories on fear, hate, and bigotry is the latest collection from sweatshop Literacy Movement. The anthology brings together more than 40 writers detailing through their art what racism is in Australia. Now, you... We'll likely have met Sweatshop on this show before. I love their publications, and I can't really go past their own description of their work and mission. Sweatshop is a literacy movement based in Western Sydney. It's devoted to empowering culturally and linguistically diverse communities through reading, writing, and critical thinking. I'm joined by three incredible writers who have contributed to the collection. I'd like to introduce them each to you now. Tyree Barnett is an American transplant originally from North Carolina. He's a member of Sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement. His writing has been published in SBS Voices and other Sweatshop anthologies, and he's currently developing his debut novel. Tyree, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Also joining us is Shirley Le. She is a Vietnamese-Australian writer from Yaguna. She's a creative producer at Sweatshop. Her stories and essays have been published in Kill Your Darlings, The Griffith Review, Mianjin, several Sweatshop anthologies, and Shirley is currently working on her debut novel with firm Press. Shirley, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me today.
0: And in, I've somehow done, reverse alphabetical order, I'm going to welcome Amani (laughs) Haider. She's a lawyer, artist, and writer. Her writing and illustrations have been featured on ABC News Online, SBS Voices, Arab Australian Other, and Sweatshop Women. Amani was a finalist in the 2018 Archibald Prize, and her debut novel, The Mother Wound, is out now. I've, I've received a copy. It's amazing. Amani, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me, Andrew.
0: Now, this is... A conversation like I'm excited to be talking to you because I've thoroughly enjoyed your writing, but I won't pretend that this is going to be like, you know, necessarily a fun or an easy conversation, because we're dealing with a topic that is pervasive but also ignored in Australia. And I, I thought we could start off with the concluding piece in the collection. And in that in that work conclusion, Sarah Ayub relates a distressing anecdote of an acquaintance downplaying Australia's racist history and its racist present. The acquaintance says to her, I find it hard to believe that racism still exists in Australia today. And that's by no means uh, an original comment. I think we've all heard something to that effect. I know people that look like me, and I'm going to single out being white and male especially, too often see racism as being kind of this overt and often violent act. And in that way, racism in scare quotes becomes a thing done by racists. And by definition, not them. You all deal with very different ideas and iterations of racism in your stories. And I thought, can we start off, what is racism? How do you understand it? And how does it operate in our society? Shelley, can I can I ask you to start?
1: First of all, I'd like to speak to how important this uh, anthology is in getting Australians to understand how many how racism can manifest in so many different ways and um, I really think it's important to for Australians to understand that um, there are so many different experiences of racism that can happen and they can vary in scale and magnitude and the more that we have these open conversations, the more understanding that uh, the more understanding our country will um, have about this really important issue. I think racism in Australia is definitely embedded in our society as a system through institutions. And that starts with the colonization of Australia. And the Aboriginal history that we have, even growing up, was either swept under the rug or not really spoken about through the lens of Aboriginal thinkers. Like I I remember growing up and not having access to those voices. So I think it's really important for us to understand the history of racism in our country and the structures that are born out of racist thinking that we still have to contend with today. I think that was a really
2: comprehensive definition, Shirley. And I think as well, it's really important that when we talk about racism and dismantling racism, we go beyond thinking about what we do as individuals and what we unlearn as individuals and go towards what we do structurally and how we agitate for change in places where change is really, really hard to achieve. And that includes workplaces, the corporate sector, um, in you know the halls of parliament and also in the world of literature, which is what we're talking about now. So for me, it's about looking into the future and trying to reimagine a society where we have grappled with all of the issues that Shelley pointed about with our history, with the complexity of racism and how pervasive it is in a way that's, where we can sort of strip back the defensiveness that we're often encountered with and actually have some genuine conversations about radical change on a, on a political, social level.
3: I think also jumping on the two points, two excellent points that were made by Shirley and Amani is that racism often exists in the absence of diversity or the absence of other alternative, I want to say alternative, other experiences really. And so, If someone, if if an entity or an individual or an organization develops in an echo chamber where there is nothing is challenged, nothing is pointed out, no alternative uh, viewpoints are given, uh, then you end up with uh, one way of thinking, uh, which is often seen as or can be seen as superior or singular, and it doesn't include everyone else's stories, experiences or input. And this is why to Amani's point, you have to look at really every structure across society. You have to see who is at the helm of a lot of these structures and organizations. And beyond just diversity statements or, or reconciliation plans or et cetera, what does that look like? Who is driving that? What voices are you getting from the public, from those communities, um, who is being able to to have points of decision-making and points of authority across um, how those changes are implemented or how those uh, viewpoints are challenged or prosecuted. And so deconstructing racism is an active uh, ongoing exercise that um, it's not easy, but until you really uncover Every facet of society where overt and covert racism exists, it's always going to be somewhere because, as, as Shirley said, it's in the school system. It's on the news. How many times have we seen you know, the, the news networks apologize or have to clarify a comment made? It's because there's no diversity in their newsrooms or in their editorial rooms or editorial boards. And so you have to uncover every facet of society, every potential point where um, there has not been a diverse viewpoint or there has been a vacuum or an echo chamber uh, and really introduce alternative ways of thinking, alternative viewpoints, or if that cannot be done, then rebuild it from scratch because it's not serving what Australia is today in terms of being, I want to say, multiracial, not multicultural.
0: A concept that I've been trying to, I guess, learn about and grapple with how it actually works, and I think you're, you're all sort of picking up on on something I've been trying to understand myself, is this difference between not being racist so you're you're the person who sees racism as over there and done by racists and you're not being racist and being anti-racist and and connecting in with this idea of there are institutions that by omission or commission you take part in like i mean myself i've i've grown up in australia i've gone through a school system that that recognizes um you know kind of whiteness as a default in its curriculum and and trying to actively be a part of that. I mean, I, I saw a thread running through the collection: this assumption that white people and whiteness kind of make on their own access, even when it, you know, comes to recognizing others as even as having rights. So I saw, I saw this, um, Tyree, and the tourists that arrive and fe- refuse to pay in invasions in your story in the collection, um, Amani, This came through in the the limited menu at the work function you describe in Hijab Days. How does whiteness and dominant culture kind of use its privilege to, I guess, make itself seem inevitable and everyone else kind of seem invisible?
3: Sure, sure. That's that's a really big question. I think it, as you said, it starts with who's in the room and whose viewpoints are being considered and who actually has the power or influence to speak. Whiteness and white superiority often exist in the absence of diverse viewpoints or challenges. When I think of I guess, whiteness and how pervasive and how it works in a society and clues into its influence. I think of a travelator. A travelator in an airport or any sort of structure is essentially the, the forward propelling motion is whiteness. And so people that benefit from whiteness, from white superiority, just go along the travelator. Then they may walk in the direction of the force they're being pulled in and they're paying mind Nevermind in, in, in terms of who they pass or who they leave behind. Then there's another person who may get halfway through and stop and realize, hey, I'm passing everyone who uh, does not have the same perpetual motion or the same energy that I do in terms of being able to go forward so quickly. What do I do? Do you know what's going on? Why are we moving so much faster than everyone else? And then to be anti-racist is to be the person that's moving in the opposite direction against the force saying, hey, we have an unfair advantage. You see that person back there? They're starting so far back from where we are. Because we have this unseen advantage, unseen superiority that's pervasive across society due to our own not considering other opinions, not bringing in people into the conversation. And so we need to actually go back and assist this person, maybe give something up so that they can move forward or so they can at least be on an equal playing field. And so when I think of the whiteness and its pervasiveness in society, I think of that analogy, and I guess in some ways that's a way to explain what it looks like, how it operates, and I guess how it moves within society.
2: Yeah, and building on that in my piece in Hijab Days in the anthology, I kind of have explored these environments that I was in when I was a, a lawyer in a law firm and how whiteness is the default in that setting. It can occur in such a subtle way and it always presumes that everybody is able to conform to that default and doesn't make a concession to accommodate anybody outside of that default. So then what happens is that if you're a person of colour in those spaces, which you've usually worked really, really hard to get into where you might not have the same socioeconomic privileges that other people in those spaces have, where you don't have, you know, a history of lawyers in your family, for instance, or you know, a network of people who can support you in that environment. You're doing it alone and you're trying to meet this unreachable standard at all times. And sometimes you're conscious of that, but oftentimes you've internalized that standard and you're working towards it regardless. And it wasn't until I was able to look back at my experiences in hindsight through the writing process that I could pick apart some of the more subtle and nuanced experiences I had. And I was not visibly Muslim at the time, so the story is about the shift for me from being someone who didn't wear a hijab to someone who did wear a hijab. So I could actually almost pass as white in some spaces, and still sensed this um, feeling of otherness in, in in corporate events, in corporate spaces. And we know that the corporate world has so far to go. It's not even we haven't even sort of scratched the surface yet. But um, in those little anecdotes, I think it becomes obvious how you're always diminishing your your sense of difference and trying to keep up with um, the language, the environment, the fitting in that you need to do in order to get by in these places and to uh, build on your success and have conversations with people, even though those conversations might not even be relevant to your world. And the example that comes up in one of the stories in there is of being at a function where There's been no thought given to any kind of diversity where the menu is a a big pig on a spit roasting around and round and then served as sliders at this Christmas function where you're trying to impress all these customers and then me looking around the room and identifying people who were probably also Muslim by their names or by other sort of codes that can come across when when you're accustomed to identifying diversity and realizing that no effort had been made to accommodate people in this space. And yet we were all sort of present in the uniform of the corporate world and in the forms of whiteness, participating and contributing and how undignified it can be to sort of realise that you're sacrificing parts of yourself or silencing parts of yourself in order to keep up.
0: Amani, can I also ask just to, just to clarify, and I honestly, I, I actually think I'm about to pull something from your book, not from your contribution to the collection, but there's a scene you describe graduating where you are there and you see other um what would you call them like legacy families where there's multiple families who have been lawyers and there was something of that description that almost felt like for for you you had worked so hard and come so far you were kind of like the person finishing the race saying i've made it and for them it almost looked like they were you know they hadn't broken a sweat it was always expected and they had this entire network to lean on
2: yeah, that is actually from my book and it's definitely a related concept to what I've written about in racism. So it's it's this environment in which, um, you know, I'm the first in my family to be breaking that barrier, to be getting that level of education, to be entering a profession, to be entering in into such a formal space um, for, you know, my admission ceremony in that scene and feeling that immediate sense of being a little bit outside this place, this institution and its traditions and its um Uh, expectations and I sort of kind of remember you know panning across the room and you you make these observations as an individual passing through white society and you don't necessarily vocalize it at the time you might not even think it's you know a valid observation to be making but they're constant things that you're on the lookout for because you're accustomed to bracing yourself for uh rejection or microaggressions or um you know, people evaluating your worthiness and whether or not you're going to be articulate enough for this space or clever enough for this space or um, capable enough to, you know, uh, impress your boss and know everything about, you know, the rugby, which you actually don't care about but you need to know about in order to discuss things with people in a relatable manner. And, um, you know, there were countless of exam- examples of that, you know, throughout my uh, legal career and, you um, you know, I think it's nice to validate those moments and actually discuss them and open them up for, you know, for to create a sense of conversation around it. You
1: know, I think uh, Tyree and Amani's stories were just so fabulous in showing how racism can manifest not only um, in the travel industry, like in that setting, um, but also in the corporate world. And I think um, we saw examples of how both um, racism can be overt but also insidious. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely enjoyed reading um, both of their stories and um, I think for my story I was more toying with the question of racism as, you know, the lies being told about you and how you absorb the lies and um, continue existing as a person who accepts those lies as truths. Um, so that's that's how I was um, interpreting the theme of racism. Um, and I I thought about um, the time period where Crazy Rich Asians was becoming a big uh, hit in Hollywood, and how um, that was kind of creating this view of. Um, Asians as uh, very much wealthy individuals who, um, who, who were almost, you know, accepted as part of like, you know, maybe um, the cool, the cool minority, or to put it in a more um, uh, scholarly way, the model minority. And I was toying with that as a uh, brown Asian, as a Southeast Asian person. And so I wanted to reflect those prejudices um, in my piece. So I think um, my piece is uh, somewhat different to both Amani and uh, Tyrese in that way.
0: I was hoping actually, can I ask you, so your piece is called Looking Classy, What Are You? And you introduced this concept. Maybe it's not new. Maybe it was just new to me. But I wanted to ask you about the concept of being stigmatized. And in your piece
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: Partly partly because I thought it would just, you know, it's 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 just got a a, it's got a hook. But it has this really specific meaning around dating, but it felt like it, it had this way of overlapping into the idea that you're blinded by someone's relative or their perceived power that the the status that you hold them in Uh, gives them power over you and it, it felt like it had a resonance with what we're discussing and in the way the you know perceptions of relative worth might might play out
1: yeah um so the the protagonist in the story views this person who she's about to go on a tinder date with as richer than her uh more good looking than her and smarter than her and um she she's intimidated by that. Um, Digmatized is a word that someone said to me once um, before I, uh, while I was single, I guess, and I just thought, you know, I'd run with it in the story. And you're right. It is, it is a way of being blinded and intimidated um, by, um, you know, different identifiers through which we view people. And I think wealth was something that I really wanted to dig dig deep into, wealth and class, because um, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, um, I, had to, I had to really ask those questions um, about why um, a certain group of Asians in this certain film was making such an impact. Um, and that tied into my thinking about um, K-pop as well, um, and that wave of Korean pop culture that has seemed to um, be able to penetrate into uh, the Western consciousness. Uh, I I wanted to think about um, the acceptable forms of being Asian under a white gaze and how that white gaze can blind us to other, other ways of being Asian and can also limit um, Asian Australians in the ways that we view ourselves.
0: That was really um it was really interesting to me because it, it did make me think about the way power can can seem benign. And even in the use of that, that sort of term, it you know, we all had a good laugh at it because it it's got a hook, but it described a power dynamic that that could be difficult. And it was also I I found in the stories this idea around fetishizing of culture, and I popped in my notes, specifically, um, in Hijab Days, Amani, you describe a senior lawyer talking about how he wishes he could do Ramadan to lose some weight, and in this way, like, seeming to just completely flatten, um, you know, a, a historical, cultural, religious tradition into you know a 30-day weight loss plan um, that you know maybe maybe he could you know subscribe to um but then I, I also if I think about it Terry I see that in in your story there uh, the tourists have this very fetishized idea of who these people are they don't live in a space so much as they are a barrier to the white tourists accessing a space how does this fetishizing of culture, operate or how do you see it operating in terms of you know kind of broader racist action because on the one hand it's it's pedestalizing it's putting someone up there it's seeming to be you know it's seeming to say something kind
2: it can sound kind but I think what it actually does is minimizes and Uh, downplays the importance of cultural practices, um, religious practices, things that do make people different and then it erases that difference by by downplaying it. So I think rather than engaging with, um, you know, someone whose cultural background is different to ours and then that comes up in the conversation, a lot of the times there is this sense that um, white Australia doesn't want to talk about it and They view any conversation around difference or otherness or race as inherently taboo or inherently conflict-driven when it doesn't actually need to be that way. You can have conversations that are civil um, and respectful about a whole range of diverse things. And I know amongst us at Sweatshop, we operate as a safe space and we create that type of conversation with one another. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be able to take place in broader society, but Because of this all-pervasive whiteness, because of the way that it's so structural, because of the lack of literacy people have around talking about culture and race and racism, um, these conversations become stifled and awkward and, frankly, quite embarrassing for the people involved in them. And they're the types of interactions that you're then faced with when you go out into the world and you're just trying to work or you're just trying to build relationships with your colleagues or whoever it might be where it's this constant sense of awkwardness and tiptoeing around that difference rather than a genuine warm engagement that we can, I believe achieve if we do dismantle um, racism in Australia.
3: I think too, jumping on what Amani has said, which is a very excellent point is that whiteness often sees um, things outside of whiteness or other cultures, almost as, Things to try out as trinkets or as experiences or as something fun to do. You know, uh, it doesn't matter where the origination of that culture came from. We've seen that with, you know, however many um, white women there are that are yoga instructors who have no appreciation for the cultural practice uh, that yoga uh, stemmed from. And I, I think in, in, in my piece uh, that I wrote for racism, uh, there was an example of that where. There was a historically black university in the US, um, Howard, where there was a lot of gentrification. Howard was in a black neighborhood that eventually was gentrified and was much more white and, and hippie and expensive. And so you had these new white residents essentially going onto Howard University's campus, crossing over into certain sacred parts of the campus that a number of historically black fraternities and sororities actually had access to that particular square or, or square footage or block of land or plot essentially that has, it has historical nature. It's almost, it's, it's, it's almost like sacred grounds of that particular fraternity or sorority it's theirs. And you had people picnicking or walking their dog on these sacred historical parts of the campus that had really important histories of being the first part in America where this type of organization was created and originated, being a fraternity or a sorority for social and uh, professional gain, as well as camaraderie. And whiteness treating this space as, oh, it's a park, or oh, what a great place for a picnic, and not bothering to understand when students got upset or where other members of the Howard University uh, community got upset at the way they were conducting themselves on this very important land and not bothering to educate themselves. So Mani's point, point or, or grasp that. Similarly to in Santo, where the white tourists did not want to pay a very cheap fee to use facilities to, to swim in the blue hole and to use the, the land and have access to the land, simply because they didn't bother to understand or want to understand the dynamic of these are actually owners and this is private land and you're paying a contribution to access to private land which is completely Western, you know. So them not wanting to understand that goes back to whiteness coveting things and and coveting things that exist outside of their culture as experiences or things to try that they don't have to be beholden to cultural practices or to cultural norms or to uh, the historic nature of those spaces or those practices.
1: I'd also like to add to that that um, when I talk, when I think about the word fetishization, I really – um, have to think about uh, the Atlanta spa shootings that happened um, a few months ago, and I think I think that moment was really a, a way. It was such a tragedy, but also um, I think it started to spark a lot of conversation about how um, Asian women are. Fetishized and the experiences that we go through um, that are so limiting on our ideas of who we are as people, but also um, can have really tragic consequences um, for our lives. And so, um, fetishization to me as an Asian Australian woman is very much rooted in objectification. And um, sure, you know. Uh, I think this conversation has been had to death in terms of you know, um, quote unquote white men having yellow fever and thinking that it's a compliment to tell an Asian woman that um, you're very much just attracted to her attracted to her on the basis of her race. Um, but I think you know, um, fetishization is, I think sometimes a cover that um, people use to, uh, engage in ways to disempower marginalized groups of people.
0: That's it for this great conversation with Amani Hader, Shirley Lay, and Tyree Barnett. Racism: Stories on Fear, Hate, and Bigotry is out now from Sweatshop, and you can order a copy online at sweatshop.ws. This was part one of the discussion. Make sure to join us for part two where Shirley, Tyree and Amani are going to be exploring public and personal responses to racism. We're also going to look at the process of unlearning and discuss how to approach instances of racism in everyday life. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Ganangara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Do stay in touch. If you've reacted to anything we've said or any of the books that we've read, I'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The handle is at FinalDraft2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll get part two of this conversation as well as a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading and bye now.